Like other industries, banks can often benefit in the present by learning lessons from the past. Our guest this week is financial commentator Zachary Carabell, whose new book tells the 200-plus-year story of Brown Brothers Harriman and why that history matters for banks today and in the future. Actionable insights can help power smart decisions. Each week, the BAI Banking Strategies podcast focuses on important issues facing financial services leaders, as well as the emerging trends that are rapidly reshaping the financial industry. I'm Terry Badger, your host and the managing editor at BAI. Pull up a chair and join us. The well-known saying, what's past is prologue, comes from Shakespeare's drama, The Tempest. America's financial industry may not now be amidst a tempest, but there certainly is plenty of drama. With us to share his thoughts on how the country's banking history informs its present and stands to influence its future is Zachary Carabell, prominent financial commentator and author of the new book, Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman, and the American Way of Power. Zach, welcome to the BAI Banking Strategies podcast. Thank you for having me. Zach, I'm curious about why you wrote this book and why you wrote it now. In broad terms, what is it about Brown Brothers Harriman that makes it worthy of a book-length treatment? So first of all, I wanted to write a book about the central role of money in the making of the United States. So essentially, I wanted to write about how money made America in the 19th century, made this burgeoning new nation into this affluent powerful nation by the end of the 19th century and how the men and they were all men or at least they are all men in this narrative how the men who made the money of the 19th century then made the global system of the 20th century and became the architects of the global system that we live with today the united nations the world bank the world trade organization the whole Bretton woods monetary system with the dollars the anchor of the global economic system if you want to understand how this world came to be, you have to understand firms like Brown Brothers that were the architects of that particular system. Brown Brothers, Harriman, because they are the only institution that has essentially survived almost the entirety of American history and remains in business today, becomes the perfect armature for that story. And I think the one thing that surprised me a bit was also how just vital they were in the 19th century from funding the first railroad, first passenger steam-powered railroad was the Baltimore and Ohio, the B&O, which was almost entirely a product of Alexander Brown, the patriarch of Brown Brothers, who founded the firm in Baltimore, which he did as a public works project to try to make Baltimore competitive with New York and Philadelphia unsuccessfully. And so I was more interested in that arc per se, and then found Brown Brothers as the way to tell it than I was necessarily focused on telling the story of Brown Brothers Harriman full stop. We'll get more into that arc that you were talking about now. But I want to come back to kind of the present day, which is the idea that the timing of your book looks pretty fortuitous, given last month's news that State Street is buying BBH's investor services business, which is perhaps what it's best known for these days. Aside from amassing an even greater market share, what's the value in this deal for State Street, this $3 billion deal? And what's left of BBH? Is that enough for it to continue to be a significant player in the industry in its third century of existence? Great question. So let me give you a slightly circuitous response that will, I think, make sense by the time I get to the end of it, which will not take very long. 
Brown Brothers has been around for 220 years. By the 1980s and 1990s, when they do not go public, when everybody else around them is going public, including State Street and, and Bank of New York Mellon, they were highly profitable, run as a private partnership, but had in their kind of internal mantra and their internal firm culture really departed from the warp and woof of most of Wall Street, whose mantra was, how much bigger can we get? How much more money? How much more assets? How much you know more substantive? And Brown Brothers really never embraced that. They were much more about how can we serve our clients while maintaining a private partnership in a highly competitive world? And therefore, what can we do to be viable in that? When they sold what is about 70% of their business to State Street this year for the tidy sum of $3.5 billion, they did so because things like custody and a lot of investor services, not all of it, but a lot, is a very high volume, low margin business. And unless you're going to amass trillions and trillions, and Brown Brothers was like number eight or nine in terms of its size with Bank of New York Mellon and State Street being the number one, it's hard to really be competitive. It's not the most lucrative per dollar business. And that's an understatement. What's left of BBH, is that enough for them to continue to be a significant player in the industry? Well, it depends on what industry they define themselves as being a player in. So if it's wealth management and high-end kind of family office stuff, right, you know, catering to that world, offering some investment management, doing it globally, doing it for international clients. And if on the other side of that, this deal, they have slightly fewer than a thousand employees, a dozen plus partners, and what I think will be seven or $800 million in revenue. And again, these are rough figures. They don't disclose all this. They don't want to be big. They want to be viable. They want to be profitable. They want to be sustainable and they want to be good at what they do. And part of the point of the book is there should be nothing, not only wrong with that model, but we should actually celebrate that model far more than we do. This deal between State Street and BBH, uh, this isn't the only M&A activity. Uh, I mean, obviously, M&A activity is running pretty hot in financial services these days. A recent Wall Street Journal article said the pace of mergers now is at its fastest since the financial crisis more than a dozen years ago. I'm curious what you think about today's M&A frenzy in banking that, that seems to be driven by, as you've touched on a couple of times already, the desire for ever more scale and where this trend may lead us. It's a trend for ever more scale with ever more narrow margins. I think the two are inseparable. A lot of this m and activity is not being dictated by highly profitable businesses buying other highly profitable businesses. It's in the financial ecosystem. The amount of profit you can eke out is year by year by year, just less and less and less. I mean, think about trading commission, which used to be a massive part of most brokerage firms and banks. And with firms like from Schwab to Robinhood, where trading commissions are zero, you know, it's hard to compete with zero as a profit center. And that's true in a lot of the financial world. The whole result of the financial regulations post 2008-2009 has been, it's a much more constrained ecosystem. It doesn't mean people aren't making a lot of money. It doesn't mean you can't make a good deal of money on deals. It just means that the overall trend year by year by year is for you know, less and less fees per dollar. And so I think a lot of the M&A activity, it's driven by scale, 
but it's not driven by kind of relentless greed in the same way I think you saw in prior years. It's more driven by the need to survive and it's hard to survive in this world. You either have to be really big, charging very low, low fees, or you have to be really innovative and new and small and able to present in the patois of the world your value proposition to clients and charge a little bit more. Your book, Inside Money, it's a history book, but in it, you recount issues from the past that are contemporary issues as well. I mean, this includes the economic balance between labor and capital. You touch on public resentment of the very wealthy in those pages, and and also the notion of too big to fail comes up as well. So this makes me wonder how much BBH has shaped the American banking landscape as it exists today. When it came to things like creating early instruments like letters of credit that became fundamental to the entire international trade system, their role both can't be overstated and has usually been underappreciated. These larger themes of like resentment of wealth, the feeling that the captains of capital have sort of stolen the hard-earned wages of the heartland or the hard-earned work of the farmers. Part of the point of, I think, reading this history or writing it from my perspective is to remind people that some of our contemporary, very heated cultural divisions are not new, are a next chapter of kind of an ongoing back and forth where there has been a whole lot of fulmination and anger and resentment and confusion between basically wage, labor, and capital. And what I think was interesting, and I guess defines irony, is that at the apex of that system of elites privileging capital, sort of privileging their own value system, which I think is really the early 1950s, the average gap between a CEO's pay and a worker's pay was, you know, 10 to 20 to 1. Whereas in a a world that we think of as today as more egalitarian and more open and less hierarchical and less elitist, you know, that gap is hundreds of times to 1. And maybe that's the right number. It's fascinating that this more elitist, self-consciously exclusionary world, because they believed in public service and they believed that that they couldn't thrive privately without the commons thriving, i.e. the public. You can't beggar the commons endlessly. That was their view. That ethos dictated a certain giving back or public service or public mindedness that is weirdly enough not nearly as evident in today's supposedly more egalitarian world. Based on your long experience in the Banking Space Act, but both as a participant and as a, an observer, what do you think banks are doing well in terms of connecting with their communities and what could they be doing better? I mean, this is kind of, it depends on the bank. And I, and I don't just mean it depends on like whether you're Wells Fargo or JP Morgan. I mean, it literally, it depends on, are you a local bank? Are you a digital bank? Are you a money center bank? And if you're a money center bank like JP Morgan, et cetera, you're so constrained by the regulatory framework as well as answerable to eight different regulators, which is not the most coherent system known to man that I think it does make things like innovation and creativity difficult, even in the retail banking space where they've been a little more consumer facing and user friendly. There remain a lot of local banks and community banks that are more deeply embedded in their system and in their communities, farm credit unions, other credit unions. And then you have this incredible efflorescence of of kind of digital, non-traditional banks or decentralized finances Maybe it's a fad, maybe it's 
the innovative trend of the future, but it speaks to a world of the unbanked and millennials who, look, if they could open a bank account, some of them with Google, they would do it. If they could do it with Walmart, they would do it. You know, the fact that there is technology has opened up possibilities of what traditional banking offered in non-bank ways is going to be good for consumers if a government doesn't regulate it to death a priori, meaning regulate it when there's something to regulate as opposed to regulate away innovation. And if those companies themselves behave responsibly to their customers, rather than trying to be the new venture capital unicorn and cash out, right? So both things need to be true. They need to be less greedy and regulators need to be less quick to squelch innovation. I want to come back to the question we did just before this one. When you were talking about the history of public service that was sort of built into the Brown Brothers Harriman model of capitalism, you made the point that we see less of that today. So I wanted to ask you, should today's banks and today's bankers, should they be doing more to be public leaders, to be along the lines of what BBH used to be? Absolutely. So I think anybody who's benefited disproportionately, and by disproportionately, I don't mean unfairly, I just mean literally disproportionately, from the capitalist economic system that we are all part of, has a responsibility in the way in which all these elites of the late 19th century were drilled with the mantras of with great power comes great responsibility, right? The Spider-Man view of history. Everybody in these worlds should personally internalize that, should, meaning that's my own moralism speaking, but I think it's, it would be a vital contribution. And these institutions should think about it. I mean, to be fair, a lot of the startup decentralized finance and other groups are thinking about how do we serve those who have been unserved by traditional institutions? How do we serve them better, cheaper, faster, simpler, less friction, less intermediaries? That doesn't mean they're also not trying to get rich. It just means that they are, in fact, I think, thinking in terms of who's been underserved by this system. But we should all think about who's being underserved and how we can all be of service. You can be self-serving and of service simultaneously. I don't think those things cancel each other out. But yeah, I would encourage any institution, any leader of any institution, financial institution, to be mindful of that, that it's ultimately better for shareholder value, right? A firm like Brown Brothers always thought in terms of what is a sustainable system for our partners over the long term and our employees. That is a definition of sustainable capitalism that everybody could embrace. One of the many things to like about Inside Money is that while you clearly developed some admiration for the Brown family and what they created, the firm, its values, you didn't cross that line into hagiography. So one area that you spotlight was the Brown's role in financing the pre-Civil War cotton trade built on the back of slavery. Antecedents of other prominent American banks were similarly involved. So given that historical connection, what do you think banking's role is today in addressing inequities that have arisen from slavery's legacy? Yeah, and that's a great and important question. Part of the point I make about the Browns in the early to mid-19th century and their role in the cotton trade, and at one point, I mean, they are the merchant who's 15 to 20% of all cotton, and the paper derivatives of the cotton trade flow through Brown Brothers in the 1830s and into the 1840s. They were a major, major player here but that they were embedded in a system that was morally compromised. One of the reasons that Abraham Lincoln says a nation half free and half slave cannot 
you know, house divided cannot stand is that you really couldn't ultimately be half free and half slave by virtue of being half slave as an economic system, given how much the North was profiting from the South, you were essentially a slave economy, even if you were outlawing slavery in your particular states in the North, and that that was an untenable moral position. I don't think that there are the same unequivocal absolute lines today or issues today that rise to the level of unambiguous wrongs that we are embedded in in the world today. I imagine some people would differ about that and they might say, well, anybody who's financially involved or commercially involved in a way that is complicit with the Beijing government's treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang is similarly complicit, you know, or you name it elsewhere in the world. I don't agree with that, you know, meaning I don't think it's the responsibility of every human being to fight against every human injustice at every moment in time, or even if it's our responsibility, it's a fool's errand. So I don't think there's an equivalent moral structure today, but I do think back to your earlier question about what can banks do to be more socially minded, that any institution that throws up its hands and says, hey, I don't care if schools are falling apart and there's this huge rural urban divide and broadband is unavailable, which is kind of at this point as close to a, a necessity and therefore a human right. I don't think any institution that throws up its hands collectively or the people within it individually and say, hey, not my problem, right? I think that's an untenable position, that if there's a collective problem of any magnitude, refusing to see the ways in which you either contribute to it or ameliorate it is ultimately wrong, as in it will not do your business any good, let alone the society in which you're a part. And that's a radically different statement than the sort of more free market, Milton Friedman-esque mantras that have dominated a lot of corporate and individual corporate chieftains for the past 50 years, which is namely all those issues that I just talked about or that you allude to are externalities that are not the responsibility of corporate leaders or of corporations. And I believe, and I think huge numbers of people currently believe that that, that doesn't work. And weirdly enough for Brown Brothers and a lot of people in the late 19th and early 20th century, they wouldn't have defined a corporate responsibility as being solely about their own profit. They would have, in fact, defined it as this is good for my my family, my employees, my community, my country. One of the key themes, Zach, running through the book is the notion of moderation. And you've touched on it a little bit in our conversation so far. You write in the book that the brands were never about getting too huge. They were never about profit maximization, as many firms are today. The last chapter of your book is titled, When is Enough Enough? And this is certainly a question being asked of banks and bankers and other corporations as well, a lot these days. How do you think of this question of how much is enough with regard to banks, given the current strategy of big getting bigger? Yeah, so I think the enough enough question is, you know, what's enough profit, what's enough size, and what's enough scale? And that every company should be asking itself that question. That bigger is not always better. More money is not always more. Meaning more volume and more business doesn't necessarily lead you to a more sustainable place. Asset managers realize this, right? Once a fund gets big enough, it's hard not to be an index fund, right? But I also think it's like, when is enough compensation enough? I remember during the financial crisis, there were still a lot of people working in these large financial institutions who felt like, 
hey, my division just made a lot of money, so why isn't my bonus commensurate to what I contributed to the bottom line? And really believing that, like they drunk that Kool-Aid without recognizing that, you know, it doesn't matter how well you're doing individually or how your unit is doing if the company you're a part of is about to go bankrupt, right? You can't just say, hey, I, you know, not, not my department that had a problem, so I should get paid. And I think that's part of a culture of you have to understand even within a large firm, your connectivity to other parts. That's the most egregious example, right? It's not just a company not recognizing that it's embedded in a larger country or community. It's individuals and individual units within a company not recognizing that they're part of a larger company. And I do believe that there is a lesson there of bigger should serve a purpose. Bigger is an normative good. It's not a moral achievement. And more money in a capitalist system is not just the only goal. That's a good point. And, and certainly it's timely, given today's political and social currents that are pushing us toward a more balanced and inclusive version of capitalism. So Zachary Carabell, author of Inside Money, Brown Brothers Harriman, and the American Way of Power. Thanks again for making the time to join us on the BAI Banking Strategies podcast. Thank you so much for a conversation that ranged from decentralized finance and fintech to uh, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. That was a great, that was a great scope. <laughs> I do what I can. Thanks again, Zach. Appreciate it. A few takeaways from our conversation with author and financial commentator Zach Carabell. First, while Brown Brothers Harriman's name is in the title, the book is really about how money made the United States and how, in turn, Americans helped build the global financial system that exists to this day. By virtue of being around since the start of the 19th century and its central role in so many important events, Brown Brothers is a reliable vehicle by which to travel through the nation's financial history. Where we are now in that long journey figures into the book's theme as well. The tight focus on shareholders established during the Reagan years has given way to a broader emphasis on stakeholders. For the banking industry, a wider responsibility is seen as banks work to develop stronger connections to their communities and to try to make up for past shortcomings. It's good socially, and it's also good business. And finally, M&A is a prominent theme in today's banking world, driven by the desire for scale. Zach's view is that size matters more now because competition has pared down profit margins, a trend almost certain to continue. The future for many financial institutions, he says, will come down to being a low-fee, high-volume enterprise or a niche player with a value prop that allows them to charge a little bit more. Thank you for listening to the BAI Banking Strategies Podcast. I'm Terry Badger, Managing Editor at BAI. Please visit us at BAI.org for more actionable insights on themes that are important for the financial services industry.